Ramona Patterson, good morning. Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. Thanks, Jeffrey. It's good to see you again. Yeah, I mean, I like I like doing these shows with people I already have a relationship with, but I also like doing shows with complete strangers I've never met. Um, you would not be the latter. I've had a chance to know you for quite a while on, I'd say LinkedIn. It's like every guest I, every person I have now, it seems like it comes from LinkedIn. Um, maybe that's where us old people hang out more often, right? <laughs> um, but no, I was really pulled in by your story about your passion you have towards art. Um, I am the proud owner of a number of your pieces of art. Uh, I've got um, I've got Diver over here to my left, which I'm going to hold that up at some point. Um, that's my favorite painting that you've done because I am a certified scuba diver. So that view of what it shows is so awesome. When I show the painting here in a little bit, I'll be able to display that. But well, listen, um, I, I like the show because we don't have an agenda. So we can go wherever, wherever your heart takes us. Um, this is about you. This is about your passions. This is about your why. And uh, hopefully people watching and listening to this can pick up a little nugget of wisdom from us conversing today. So why don't you tell our listeners, our followers a little bit about you, about, um, you know, what you're what you do for a living and we'll go from there. All right. I'm um, one of those Cajuns originally from Lake Charles, Louisiana. A lot mm. of people will remember that, <clears throat> excuse me, that town because that's the one that got hit by like six, eight hurricanes in a row, like two years ago. So um, that's where I grew up, joined the air force, was in the air force for eight years, traveled the world, um, lived in Northern Maine for a few years. And then, um, down to Florida on the other coast, Cocoa Beach, and then back up to, I moved up to New Hampshire um, and lived there for 30 years, raised my daughter. And now she's here in Florida. So I live, she's my only child. So I live 20 minutes away from her. I'm like a professional mom stalker. <laughs> <laughs> so was your, and was your, was your dad in the service then? Is that what you said? My dad was in the uh, air force okay. um, back in Korea. And so I remember looking at his pictures and I always wanted to join the the Air Force specifically, nothing else. It was the Air Force since I was like in the sixth grade. My mom said I never wavered. Mm. So, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Because it's a lot of um, a lot of moving around. Right. I mean, is that difficult when you're at young age? Well, I was the one in the Well, my dad, when he was in the Air Force, um, he got out and then married my mom. So I was not a military brat. Oh, I okay. joined the Air Force because of my dad, because gotcha. I wanted, you know, that was sort of a family legacy kind of a deal. And um, worked in corporate America after I got out of the Air Force. My background's in transportation, large scale. I can operate all kinds of large scale equipment, mm. um, heavy snow plows, uh, graders, I tow bombers and tankers, stuff like that. So wow. tractor trailers, anything big. Um, and then when I got out of the Air Force, <laughs> I worked for, like I said, corporate America, developing 24-hour dispatch operations for multi-state dispatching needs for utility companies. And then um, after I, I got done with that, I was, I was struggling and searching because during that time, my older brother, uh, when I came, I came back from Germany because my older brother had killed himself. 
And so when he did that, it totally changed my life, changed yeah. everybody's life. Now, what year was that? This was in 1981. Oh, so it was, it was a while ago. How old was he? Yeah, it was a while ago. And it, it just changed my outlook on life. I remember making a vow to myself because he and I shared a birthday. He was seven years older than me. Mm. And I remember making a vow to myself that when I stood over his grave, that I was going to live a big enough life for the both of us. And mm -hmm. I think I'm doing that. I, I felt that, that pain that he was in, you know, um, made him do what he had to do. You know, mm -hmm. there's, so I, I just remember thinking that man, life is so short. I need to live the biggest life I can. And I remember like thinking about my retirement and talking to my daughter, like, oh, when I retire, I, you know, I want to live wherever you live, you know, babysit the grandkids and uh, take a painting lesson. And so hmm. we, um, the kids thing didn't work out and that's okay, but I did get the painting lesson out of it. And uh, so when I moved down here, she bought me painting lessons with this artist, this teacher. Um, and so I had like 13 lessons. It was amazing. It was wonderful. But it gave me confidence uh, to know what the tools were. And then I used art to help me deal with my unresolved mm. trauma from my brother's death. So my first paintings were really dark, Jeff. They were dark, but it was getting out, you know, uh, using my art as therapy was really important for me. And now, I was going to yeah. ask, do you know William Storr? The name sounds familiar, but I'd have to. Yeah, he's an addiction artist. Um, I met him. I met him through uh, f another friend on LinkedIn and she referred me to him. And then I had him on my podcast. And when you mentioned dark art. That made me think about his, I mean, it's captivating. Um, he, I've seen it. You're right. He's got the yeah. big pieces yep. with the yep. very dark and the eyes are just tortured. And he draws yes. out the essence of capturing, you know, the, the grips of addiction, you know, the sinister hold that it takes on our soul and our, our mind and body. And he captures it quite well. Um, and I think some people probably are intimidated by his art because it is, extremely dark but for those people that are in the grips of addiction substance abuse depression those type they can really relate to that type of artwork um so you started off kind of in that dark mode with your art and now, now obviously you're the polar opposite of that yeah it was very healing for me yeah i i recognize you're you're right um it can be uncomfortable to look at william's artwork if you've never been through hell for me, you it's know. not, it's not bothersome at all. Um, I, 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 I get capped, like I said, I get captivated by it, but yeah, I and could, that, I could see where some people would get maybe triggered or get, I don't know, but he definitely does a wonderful job. And a lot of people like his artwork, just like yours. Um, but it's interesting how each piece of art can do so much for different people. Yeah. I find that, um, being able to express what I'm feeling in color mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, 
be in the type of art I do, there is a whole lot of letting go and trusting the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my mind, I might, I'll, I'll have an image of what I want to achieve. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Like if I'm working on a commission for someone, I'll paint at least five or six different paintings hmm. because I want, I, I can, you know, I can interpret things in so many ways that I want that customer to have a bunch of options. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if, if they don't choose one of the ones that I've painted, that's just inventory that just becomes inventory. It's not like it's ever wasted. Now, are you like, I would probably be, if I was an artist, I'm, I'm horrendous by the way, but if I was a good artist, I probably be my worst critic. I mean, do you ever have a painting where you finish, you say, wow, that's a 10 out of 10. That's, I can't do any better than that. Or are you like a lot of people who are, you know, in, in the arts, whether it's writing or um, drawing or you know, painting, they're highly critical of their work and they're really never satisfied. Do you reach a point sometimes where you say, wow, that's, that's pretty, it's pretty damn good. Yeah, actually I felt that way about diver and carnation. Yep. You have carnation too. I have both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I felt that way about those. Like I was like, Oh dang, this turned out even better than I thought. And then I have, it's funny in my, there's a hallway right next to my bathroom. That's perpendicular. Oh, divers so big. Um, wow. Yeah. So that's See, I feel that's, that's, under the water looking up at the fish i'm making up stuff as we go so i have my microphone in one hand and diver in the other um but yeah so if you read the back of this it says um created in july 2020 this piece was an insight into what divers must experience when they are underwater looking up they see the light from the sun as the school of fish swarms around them it must be a very magical experience to be in such a different world um i would agree um there's something about diving that uh, is so therapeutic for me. And it's been, for me, it's been a great way to um, kind of meditate, but without meditating. And what I mean by that is when you're underwater with other people, you are with other people, but you can't communicate. So it's like if you and I are together right now, we can talk. And if I saw something, I could say, hey, look at that. But if underwater, you, you can't communicate, you can point, you can do hand signals and stuff, but you're really in tune with everything around you because you're not distracted by talk. You know, once you start talking, you have to think about what you're going to say. You block out everything around you. You can't do that diving. And so diving's always been so just cathartic for me. Um, and when I saw your painting, I thought, wow, I, I actually had an experience like that where I can remember but it was squid and it was in Honduras and my wife and I, um, years ago, we were in Rotan diving my first trip to Rotan, which is probably one of my favorite places in the world. They have some of the best diving in the world. And, um, it was a scene like that. It was a bright day. It was really blue, great visibility, probably a hundred feet at least. And we were on our backs kind of looking up because sometimes you do that when you're diving, you lay on your back in the water. Sometimes you spin around, you know, just try to be fun. And I looked up and I could see all these squid. They weren't very big and they were just coming in front of us. Probably, I don't know, a thousand of them, a big school of squid. 
I've never seen that before in my entire lifetime. Um, and that's what that painting remind me of is a school of squid, you know, swimming above me. But yeah, so it's cap it's captivating to me. Um, and your, your art has a lot of those themes, whether it's the ocean or just, um, like uh, avocado planet is another one of my favorite <laughs> that you did. Um, some of these we've donated to charity events, um, and some I've kept, but the reality is, is that art is such a great, especially if you're battling, if you're battling something, you know, and I think for the artist, it's, a, I want to say it's the same impact, but it's gotta be very cathartic and therapeutic for you to draw, to paint as is it is for the person looking at the painting, you know, it goes both ways. It is. I, um, it makes me feel good to know, like when I sell a piece that somebody loves and then I know, like, I know that you can look at that painting, uh, diver and it will instantly bring you back. Mm -hmm. And that when you're unable to get into the ocean, you can use that to focus your meditation or something. But I, I get that. I feel that sense of I'm, you know, like when I'm riding my machine, even when I'm with a group, it is a meditative thing. Like you're doing an activity right. with other people, but you're also in your own cocoon sort of. Do you paint but looking at another painting or do you paint just purely always brain. from your I brain? Um, I've had once that I painted something based off of a painting or based off of a photograph. And um, I'm trying to think where it is now. I don't know where it is, but I, I just have, I'll see something that, that catches my attention or sticks in my brain. Um, and I, I like, I did the, this one. This one right here mm -hmm. is a, let me bring it in closer. That one right there, that man, the blue man coming out of the ocean. Mm. That was actually, I was at the beach and a, a man came out of the water. And I sometimes I like to go to the beach for sunset. It's 20 minutes from my house. And <laughs> I should take advantage of it because people fly down here to go to the beach. Oh, so. yeah. Yep. Um, but sometimes mostly I just don't want to deal with traffic, <laughs> but I was at the beach and this man came out of the ocean and the sun made his skin like catch on fire. Hmm. And as the water was, as he came out, the water kind of ran over his shoulders and, and around his neck. And it just struck me. It was the way the light hit him. Hmm. So that's the first time I've ever created a painting off of a real life situation. Like I didn't take a photo or anything. It was just stuck in my mind, but mostly I just pick colors or, um, and then put them together. And I try to be careful cause I know I do a lot of blues, but it's part of nature, the sky, mm -hmm. the ocean, it's blue, it's there. But a lot of times I'll find that I'll, I'll look at a painting. Sometimes I just do a background first. And then I, I have this corner in my apartment where I can, when I go to pee on my toilet, there's a space in my hallway and the paintings I'm not sure about, I'll stick them there and I'll leave, hmm. leave it like one way for a week and then I'll turn oh, okay. it. 
for a week and look at it and then turn it and turn it. But right. yeah, it's, it's just sometimes it takes me a while to see what's in it. Sometimes other people have seen yeah. what's in it before I see it. And I really love that. That feedback from other people means everything to me. Like, tell me what you see. I want to know. Yeah. I, I know what I see, but I want to know what you see. Yeah, because a lot of your paintings don't have a top or a bottom. You, you could put it up on the wall anyway. any different way. Um, so take, the, take me through, since I'm a layperson, I don't understand how you make what you do. What, first of all, what style of art is this called? And then also, um, how do you go about the painting? I mean, your paintings are very unique. They're very, I, I don't even know the terminology to describe them, but I, I just step us through how do you, how do you, what are you mixing together? You know, how long does it do a paint? How long does it take you to do a painting? Kind of an average person that doesn't paint kind of, how do you explain that? Cause you have a well, very interesting style that I don't see replicated very often. Well, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. Um, I use, um, I'm not being paid by them, but Artist Loft. And it's okay. a fluid paint that when you mix it together, it doesn't mix together. It, it just lays on top of the other color. Mm. So that's the key is getting the right product. And I think that's where things took off for me because I was painting with a brush and doing other types of painting. But when this line of product came out was when things kind of blew up for me. And so I used my kitchen island. Let's see if I can move this a little bit. I used my kitchen island. I have a piece on here right now, but it's wet. I, I, I So I can't pick it up. So once yeah. I commit to something, I gotta, I have to leave it there. Um, sure. So what I'll do is um, I'll, I'll take the sides up with painter's tape, depending on if I want the paint to run off the edge or if I want to keep it all contained. Because sometimes you can have a really good, when you're pouring your paint and you have this great, great image that you love, if you don't contain it, that image is going to slide right off the side of the canvas. Mm. So what it looks like at, Hour one I got can you, be yeah. totally different what it looks like at hour 13. And right. then what I'll do is I'll sometimes I just lay the paint on a blank canvas like I did one that's like an iceberg. And I just uh, um, and so I just did the paint right on a blank canvas. I use water. I, I use a spray bottle of water and I'll spray the canvas first to get it wet because what I want is I want to have no surface tension. I want that paint to just slide around really easy. Mm -hmm. And here's one of my tricks. And it's so <laughs> crazy. So first I went into thrift stores and I found these like old fashioned glass candy dishes and the glass candy dishes. When you turn them upside down, they had ridges in them. And the bottom had designs in them. So I was pouring the paint over these candy dishes and then, you know, moving the around and yeah, they were okay. They were all right. I liked them. But then I went to the hardware store and got this. Yeah. And so I make sure, and all it is, is I think it's like a dryer hose connector or some kind of a clamp, like for, um, air conditioning or something like that. So anyway, I'll put paint on the canvas. I know I'm, I'm giving my secrets away, but it's okay. 
Also, this one, I haven't tried this one because I've been using round ones. I'm like, there's got to be a square one or a rectangle one out there. So I found these. So that I'm trying those next. But I put paint on the canvas because I want this to kind of float. Now, put this down. I'll put a couple. Sometimes I'll just put one big one or I'll put three or four at different locations. And then I just start filling it up with paint. Mm. And depending on how big the canvas is, I'll fill it up about this much. But then sometimes as I pick it up, I'll do like mm. this a little to make a Mandela effect. Mm. And I'll be posting some of those soon. But a lot of times I'll pick up the edge and drag it. So when I drag it, that's how I get those lines. Mm. That's it. Just dragging, gotcha. dragging a $4 tube from the hardware store you know well that's the beauty of art the creativity part of it you know i mean mm -hmm. the only limit to your creativity is your mind right i mean and sometimes especially there's a lot of parallels to life it's like we overthink things we over analyze and the reality sometimes the simplest options are normally the best and that probably goes very similar to what you experience with art yeah, like these two were made. So the man emerging from the ocean, he was made using that. And so was Carnival, the mask. That was also mm. made. That was three different containers. So this was one container, this was one container, and this was another container. And I just pulled them all up in the same direction. And this mm. guy, he was three different containers. That was one, that was one, and that was one. So you can see his ribs from the container mm. mm -hmm. and then his hair as the, the thing went along. So yeah, it's funny using the same tool. I got two entirely different looks and I used to be, man, I was great in the military because I was great at following directions. I, like to know what the rules are so I can use the rules to my advantage in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And doing this type of art <laughs> really taught me to let go of all the things that really don't matter. Like that illusion of control that we think we have. Mm -hmm. It's an illusion. We, we don't really control anything. So that's why this art works for me because it's totally against you know, my, my rigid 20, 30 and 40 year old self. So now that I'm in my mid sixties, it's like, I'm not afraid. I'm just not afraid. Right. Reminds me of the conversations I hear about the illusions of like free will. You know, you don't really have as much freedom uh, that you think you do. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So let's pivot to mental health advocacy because that's a big part of your story. Mm -hmm. Why are you so now I know your brother um, in 81 took his own life. And that probably introduced you because that's fairly young age 81. I know how old I was at 81. And you're a little bit older than me. I so I can kind of use Yeah, so you're at an age where my son, my, my middle son, Ian is 22 right now, and Roman's 19. Mm -hmm. So you're about at that age. Um, how did your brother's death propel you into this mental health advocacy and, and, and did it happen overnight or was it something that took a long time for you to come to grips with? Because when you share your story, 
people resonate with that. And that's what I find in sharing my story is mm -hmm. little nuggets of wisdom that we can grasp onto from somebody's, you know, someone else's really bad situation can actually be a good thing for you when you're observing it. You don't want to live it. You don't want to be the sister of a brother that took his own life or the father of a son that overdosed with or poisoned with fentanyl or a wife that died from alcoholism. It's like, but people can learn from what we're going through. So let me go back to my original question. So how'd you, what got you into mental health advocacy? And, and um, I'll leave it at that. Um, because after my brother died, I was trying to make sense of why, you know, um, the lack of a note, the way that his house was totally cleaned out. There was nothing in there to go yet of his. There was Were there nothing. any, because he was about 28 then, right? 27 yet. Tw yeah, 27. Was there yeah, any, so was like any hint or any substance abuse issues where you guys thought, well, you know, he's kind of struggling or was this really out of left field? Well, it was out of left field. I was stationed in Germany at the time and I had been there almost three years. And mm -hmm. so I had told my mom and my family, look, I'm, I'm getting stationed in Europe. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to go back. I am not going to waste my leave. I love you guys, but I'm not wasting my leave coming back home. I'm going to use my leave to travel the world. That's why I joined the military was to see the world. I love you. You're more than welcome to come over and join me if you want. But um, so I missed a lot of what was going on, but I, you know, I, I went through a lot of talk therapy, a lot of talk therapy about it <clears throat> because it, it, um, looking at what he was struggling with was a reminder of what we all struggled with in our family. And my father right. was an alcoholic. He was a very violent man, very physical, very violent. Like he wouldn't hesitate to pick you up and body slam you like that kind of right. guy. Um, yeah. so my brother was, um, from my mother's first marriage. And um, so he never felt like we always treated him as a, he was my older brother. We always treated him as our brother. We never, you know, made him feel any differently because that was all we knew. He was there right. first. He was just right. our older brother. Right. But my dad treated him differently. Hmm. And um, so we, there were hints that he gave my mom. Like he told my mom, he, he killed himself before Thanksgiving. And he told my mom uh, around Halloween, hey, I'm not going to be here for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Can you, you know, here's some money. Can you buy presents for the kids? Oh, wow. She, so he had she been didn't planning think this, anything you think? of it. Yeah, didn't think anything of it. And so she thought he was going to visit because he was in the army. She thought he was going to visit some of his army friends out of town. Hmm. And so... Um, that was really the only sign he really hit it really well because he wanted to be successful. You Did know, you have I other think... brothers and sisters too? Yeah, there are six of us. So how, how, there's... how they, how they responded to this? Uh, my older sister has substance abuse issues really bad her whole life. So she did the, uh, she made it about her. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'll put it that way. Yeah, everybody yeah. really had a hard time dealing with it. And I'm probably the only one who went to extensive therapy about it. So, mm. but at the time I had insurance, so I could afford to go to therapy. 
but I, I, you know, yeah, that was helpful. And, uh, just trying to, trying to live my life and appreciate every second that mm. I had, you know, uh, because losing him, the impact that it had on my family, just, it broke us apart. It destroyed our family. It really did. Well, that's, I guess that's something that doesn't get discussed as much as it should. And that's the collateral damage impact. Yeah. Substance abuse, uh, addiction, you know, I mean, it really everything, depression can impact family members. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I, when I make quotes of like 825 Americans die every day from the deaths of despair, people tend to focus on what I call the death statistics. But the reality is the number of houses where death hasn't come in yet is substantially higher than the houses where death is present. So for example, if there's 825 Americans a day dying from overdose, suicide, and alcohol, think of the families that are still adversely affected, but death hasn't arrived yet. Hmm. And that's the collateral damage issue that we don't talk about. So, you know, it's great that we spend a lot of time on the death statistics, but we can't help those that aren't here. So those yeah. numbers, those numbers, other than the intrinsic value, I guess they give us of being aware of how many people are dying. As an advocate, I'm, I'm kind of more concerned on those that aren't, that haven't passed because we can save them, you know, mm. and those are in the millions. Those are in the millions of families. I mean, I go back to the, the six years that we went through prior to Seth's death and you know, it was, it was killing all of us. Um, it killed me as a dad because I couldn't do anything to stop it. Um, I never did drugs, so I couldn't relate to the drug part that he was involved in, but I could relate to the drinking cause I was an alcoholic since high school, but that inability to get somebody to stop destructive behavior. I'm not sure if there's a more frustrating human emotion and helplessness that just there's nothing you can do i mean it was so predictable and so preventable on so many fronts so all we can do as advocates is learn you know learn from those periods of times in our lives that are very traumatic and then what, what we can take to other people that they don't have to go through what we went through you know i, I can only imagine what that did to your mom and dad you know, oh, it just, it destroyed my mother. Right. It destroys them. It destroys them. And I think, I think when people, and I'm sure there's people that take their own lives that that's their intent. Mm. I'm going to take my life and I want you to suffer in pain forever. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of people that that's their mindset when they do it. And I would have to say it, it works. Um, but the reality is, is like suicide's a very complicated thing. You know, um, I think of my wife, for example, and I hate to, bring this up, but I actually had someone ask me the other day at a workshop, Ramona, she asked me, she sent me like a huge email, the longest email I've ever received in my life ever. And she said, I was just, I have a question for you. And I don't, you don't have to answer if you're uncomfortable, but she said, any reason why you don't talk about your wife as much as your son? And I thought to myself, wow, I, I've never thought of it that way. But in a way it's like, 
it's like my wife took her own life through alcohol. Even though the death certificate says alcohol, it was suicide, a slow suicide, you know, one, one drink at a time, you know, it's like they have suicide by cop, you know? And, and, and so in this case it was like suicide by alcohol. So it's complicated. It's so complicated, the human mind and where we place ourselves in, in moments of our lives, whether it's misery and chaos and, you know, hopelessness, helplessness, all that stuff. And it's like, anyway, going back to my, my wife's situation, it's like, even though it says alcohol, you know, in my heart, it was suicide. And it's tough to talk about that because she's not here to d defend herself. She's not here to, so when you lose somebody and you want to continue talking about them, sometimes there's this, you know, balancing act you have to be careful with because I don't want to, by any means, disparage what she went through. I mean, bearing a child, it's like, you can't, can't tell somebody what that's like, you know? And, um, anyway, I guess where I'm going with this is, um, I talked about the 825 Americans that die every day, but the families where death hasn't come in yet is very important for us to be cognizant of that because you mentioned about collateral damage. It's so true. It's like, and it's a ripple effect. It's not just your immediate brothers and sisters. It ripples into teachers and coworkers and neighbors and ex-spouses and ex-girlfriends. And I mean, there's so many people that are impacted when someone takes their life. And the first responders, because my mm. brother was a hunter. That's a good point. Yeah. So he, um, he had a, I don't know if it's a 30, 30, 30 odd six. I don't know. It's just a yeah. double barrel shotgun. And mm. he, cause he was a duck hunter. And so he went way out in the, in the bayou on this side road and got out of his car and took his shoe off and put the gun in his mouth and used his toe to pull the trigger. So there was mm. really nothing left. I mean, it was, had to be quick. And I always, always think about that one. I really struggle with that in therapy. What if during that second between the time he pushed the trigger, yeah. did he change his mind and it was too late? Right. But, you know, it is a, a shock wave. It's a huge shock wave and, and it impacts you so much that I feel like it's made me more um, aware of how people behave around me, like the people in my Absolutely. circle, little it's things like your that senses they might are, say. Your senses yeah. are all heightened. Yeah. Spidey tink. We have That's what I say too. Spidey senses. Yeah. yeah. So because I never want... You know, like, like I said, I would much rather you call me at 4 a.m. and we talk for hours and I'm tired the next day. I don't care because I'd much rather do that than go to your funeral, mm -hmm. you know, and plan your funeral. So it's, it's a talk therapy helped, but after a while, there's only so much talking you can do. Yeah. And, 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 and there's co-occurring issues too. So, you know, if you're yeah. an alcoholic and you're drinking every day and you're having suicidal thoughts, um, you can go to as many therapists as you want to talk about your suicidal thoughts, but until you quit your drinking, you know, these things kind of have a, a pecking order or domino effect. Mm -hmm. It's like, for me, the moment I stopped drinking is when the clarity of everything was revealed because alcohol clouded, oh, clouded yeah, my ability to see what was in front of me. You know, what, what was really important and what I thought was important, um, you know, when you're drinking to numb that pain, mm -hmm. you're not, you're not dealing with the pain and 
Yeah. I think it's pretty clear that numbing pain and, you know, repressing it isn't productive. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think, I don't, I don't think you're going to find many people that will argue, oh, it's good to numb your pain. Now we want to escape our pain. We want to absorb it into our story and stuff, but numbing it, you know, again, part of what the Living Undeterred project is about is trying to find ways that we can give coping mechanisms to people. You know, yours is art, mine scuba diving, plus a number of other things. Um, yeah, it's it's tough times right now. I'm not the statistics aren't boding very well for humans being in a good place. You know, it's tough. Yeah, and and I worry so much too, like about the young kids, like. I do too. We didn't grow up with active shooter drills. I cannot no. imagine the impact that must have on your psyche as a child. Wondering every day, is this the last time I'm going to see my home? Or will this be the day that somebody shoots up my school? I cannot imagine that trauma, that weight that these children have to carry on them. And so the fact that the rates for younger kids seem to be going up. Please correct me if I'm wrong. No, it's like, true. You know, I feel like that's a really sad uh, report on the state of our humanity. <laughs> you know, I think in Iowa here, I saw a statistic that they've had more like 12 to 14 year olds admitted to the emergency rooms for attempted suicide or threatening suicide. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, 12 to 14. And suicide wasn't even an option. We never even that 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 just never popped into my head, you yeah. know. Um, so it there's kind of a, a counter movement that maybe talking about this stuff so much with kids is actually making it worse. I mean, I'm not saying that. I don't shoot the messenger. I'm saying when no, I no, listen no. to podcasts and I I I saw an individual and. Um, or I heard an individual, I'll be careful so no one can figure out who this was, but they said a statement. They were a mental health advocate. <clears throat> now I'm going to irritate probably everybody out there that does what I'm about to say, but I'm not, I'm not saying this is my opinion. This is what someone told me. Mm -hmm. They said that there was a school system where they brought in a, a, a mom. I think it was to talk about suicide advocacy about, you know, I think her son or daughter had taken their life and there was an uptick like, right after she left of attempted suicides. I think there was an actual suicide that happened, you know, right after they had left. Now, is that coincidence? Is it, I don't know if there's studies out there that show the propensity of suicidal ideation increasing after you bring up these issues, but it's like, you know, I, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that's my opinion. Um, I'm saying, mm. you know, if, if you, I don't know. I, I am just perplexed on why we talk about this stuff more and more, even fentanyl. So I'll, I'll pivot from suicide. Let's talk about overdose. Let's talk about poisoning. We know more about fentanyl than we've ever known before. When Seth died in 2016, I couldn't spell fentanyl. I didn't know what it was. Mm. Yet now I would guess most adults know what fentanyl is and probably a, a larger percentage of high school and college kids know what fentanyl is. Um, I can randomly talk to any of my friends my son's friends and they know what fentanyl is, but the numbers there's, it's not, a, it's not a linear relationship knowing more about fentanyl or I'm sorry, 
an uh, inverse relationship. Knowing more about fentanyl decreases the death rates. It's not. We know more about fentanyl. And the death rates are climbing it's more. You know, it's it's. So I don't understand why. I don't understand why. And that's my frustrations with raising awareness, and that's why I sometimes will temper advocates' enthusiasm and say, "Hey, we don't need more awareness. We we need the numbers to start going in the other direction." And I don't know the right answer, um, but it seems odd to me that if you look at many things in, in society, the more we learn about things, it doesn't mean the better choices we're going to make. Well, I, I get what you say. Um, like you said, it, it's what someone else said that, oh, well, when she came in and talked to the school that the... It wasn't you know, me. That, trust me. I, I, I don't... Yeah. Per, I've never seen any study that validated that. I'm just saying... That's what they one said. One thing I'm really trying to do at my age, Ramona, is be um, open to pretty much any alternative view. Um, and the worst thing you can do in your life, especially as you get older, is start building barriers around your ability to learn with people that agree with you all the time. Mm -hmm. So you're just yeah. in one big echo chamber. I like to take conventional thoughts, find out more information, challenge my own thinking. I by no means in saying that, that there is a evidence that demonstrates that quite honestly, I think, I think just the contrary. I think these presentations are helping, but again, <laughs> you know, the statistics nonetheless are getting worse across the board in every area. So what gives, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I have two thoughts on that. The first one is Stephen King. Someone said, well, this person read a Stephen King book when a person did like a, a very bad crime they did. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was sort of like a copycat crime to something that they had read yep. in this book. And Stephen right. King said, like, you can't blame that on me. This person was intent on doing something. They're going right. to do it anyway. So <laughs> that, you know, you, you, you can't put the responsibility on me. Millions of people read my books and they don't go out and do these things. So exactly. Yep. I, and, and I think that the, um, the rise that, that it's not, you know, it's not leveling out. I think that it is because of what's going on in, on the globe. We have the war in Russia. We have so many other things that are going on in the world that everyone feels that they were out of control. Like, it just seems like everything's out of control. So though I think for me, it was, it's turning off the news and just focusing on me good too. things. Me too. Turning off the news, focusing on good things, yep. because... That feeling of, oh my gosh, this, this is not how the world was 20 years ago. And of course you want things to change because I don't want to be that person to put up roadblocks either. I right. want to be, I want the widest scope possible. I want to learn as much as possible. But I think that everyone feels that there's so much, there's all this negative energy going on in the world. And so some people have a better, uh, they're, Better, better at absorbing filter. the negative yeah. energy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, and again, it's, it's, it's a function of many moving parts, but the reality is I would argue that there's more good things going on in the world than yeah. there ever has been in the history of humanity. And you're right. Um, you are right. Because right. that's the, the, but you won't cycle. see it from the mainstream media. They, you'll have to go find that. You have to find it. Yes, because it's, it's not, not narrative. It's it's not newsworthy to to hear good right. stuff. It's it's the blood and guts that sells the news. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 
just goes back to control and fear. I mean, fear is one of the best ways to control people. Um, and that's, that's, uh, works for some, but for others, it doesn't, um, yeah. you know, um, but the goal of, and I, I don't even, I don't even know what the media is anymore because there really so, isn't like when I was growing cool. up, you know, you had your basic, you know, news outlets and that's what everyone went to now, you know, your the media could be some blogger or some YouTuber that just spouting evil things. And that could be your media, you know, it's, so it's, it's really been defined differently now. And, um, you know, I guess the sad thing is, is that we kind of, as humans gravitate towards the car wrecks, you know, we, we want to see the video of the plane crash and, um, that's just kind of how we're wired. And, um, I don't think that's going to change. And so you have to figure out a way to find a filter in yourself. Yeah. I'm, you know, for me, I, I'll give you a good example. Here's, here's a filter example. Um, I had a gambling problem for a very long time. And, um, there was times in my thirties where I'd be in Vegas and I'd be gambling on one hand of blackjack, you know, as much money as somebody made in a month, you know, which is just embarrassing to even say that. But at the time I wasn't married or if I was, we didn't have, you know, young kids. Um, but I realized pretty quickly that a, I can't go to casinos. I just can't. And I can't go to casinos drunk. So that was for my filter was, well, I don't want to give up drinking. So I just stopped going to casinos. So I, I self-imposed a rule. And now let me, let me extrapolate that to today. So now with your phones, you could download gambling apps. Hmm. And 6% of college kids today have a, has a, have a gambling problem, not just have apps on their, I mean, they have a gambling problem, mostly, uh, um, mostly men, teenage men, um, have this gambling addiction. And so for my filter, I would never download an app to gamble. And the yeah. irony is I have the money now that I didn't have back when I was a compulsive gambler. And now I don't gamble when I didn't have it. I gambled and now I have it. I don't, but I know now one of my filters is I cannot download a gambling app because yeah. I know I'd be gambling on everything all day long. So that's my filter. It's a self-imposed filter. No one told me to do it. I didn't go to a, a TED talk. I just realized I had to have some boundaries. And so anybody out there that's struggling with things, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you got wine at your house or beer in your fridge, well, <laughs> that's not a healthy boundary. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's just you're trying to lessen the probability of what you're trying to avoid from happening. And if you're struggling with cigarettes and you've got packets of cigarettes hide it, hit around your house, or you're struggling with alcohol and you got alcohol out in the garage refrigerator, or you like to go to bars and hang out with your friends and you struggle drinking, you know, self-impose these filters. And that's your first step to trying to get to where you want to go. So for me, that's a couple examples. And I'm sure you got some as well that you just got to, it's not that I'm afraid of alcohol. I just know what it does to my life. And I'm, I think that's something that we need to do. Like you said, the government can't legislate that. Uh, obviously, things like prohibition don't work. Um, you know, uh, a lot of this is going to have to come from us, right? Yeah, and it, and it takes time to figure it out, too. Like, you have to look at it as not being selfish. It's self-preservation. Like, what are the, like, little right. steps that you can do? Like, I, I used to drink a Coca-Cola a day, and then... 
my teeth were in really bad shape. So when I moved down here, my daughter is in the dental profession. So my teeth are like movie star teeth now. Oh, great. So I don't bring soft drinks into my house Perfect. to protect my teeth. She yeah. spent a ton of money on my teeth, you know, and time and yeah. effort and went through, we went through a lot of pain with my teeth. Yeah. So it's like anything else, you know, like just don't be around it. Now, when we go out to dinner, I might have a root beer with a pizza yeah. or something, yeah. but I don't bring it home. It's moderation it's, and it's setting those boundaries. And, yeah. you know, I do, do I now, do I go to casinos and do I gamble? Yeah, I do. I go to, but I have to drive to the casino. It's like 45 minutes away. You know, um, I make my bets, you know, at the sports book and then I come home and I wait a week. And then if I win, I go down, cash them and just keep betting. And, and I don't, I don't, I've mitigated it. I've been able to take now my addiction to gambling. And I actually, actually now it's an enjoyable experience. I went to Las Vegas last year during the football playoffs. I hadn't been to Vegas in like 17 years. Um, cause Vegas was just a hellhole for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I finally went with a friend that he's sober too. And, um, we went and it was the most enjoyable, just another buddy of mine. Um, we had the greatest Sunday betting on football. We're drinking NA beers, smoking cigars. And it's like, okay, I can do this because I have boundaries. I know my limitations. And we all have that ability. We just don't have the courage and the discipline and the determination to implement these boundaries. But we, we can do it. You certainly can do it. Anyone listening to this can do it. Um, mm -hmm. My addiction to gambling was just as strong as anyone else's addiction to anything else. And I pretty much quit for a long time cold turkey. But then I went back to it gradually with my boundaries. Now, drinking is different. I don't plan on drinking. I certainly could have a drink. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't punish myself. Um, I really wouldn't. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm trying to get people that are sober to maybe look at this a little bit differently. Still, contain, still remain sober, but you know, don't look at it as... I saw oh, someone the other day thing. post something and they said, you know, I'm something, something you're sober. You know, my life changed when I gave up alcohol. And I thought to myself, no, that's not true. Your life changed when you got your life back. You didn't give up alcohol. That, that implies that you're, you're sacrificing. Giving up means a sacrifice. What the hell are you sacrificing by stopping drinking? You're not sacrificing anything. So people don't give up alcohol. They get their life back. That's, that's the way you need to look at it. Because if you say, I gave up alcohol, it, there's an implication that still has a grip on you. That's why I don't use the word sober for me because I'm not in a fight. I just, I'm serious. It's, it's choice. I just don't it's drink. Choices, yeah. Right. I just don't drink today. But yeah. I think there's a lot of new ways we can look at some of these things. So part of what the Living Undeterred Project is all about is finding creative different ways that we can fight these problems that we've had for hundreds and if not thousands of years as humans, um, utilizing technology and innovation and conversation um, and figure out a way we can improve lives because you and I both know that with what we have for abundance, we shouldn't be as miserable as we are as humans right now. We have, we have more things than we've ever, ever needed, <laughs> but we just seem to be very unhappy with our lives, you know? Yeah. It's a shame too. And I feel that when you're in the middle of something of an addiction or uh, something that 
you're doing that's harmful to yourself that you know you really shouldn't be doing the boundaries when you're going yeah. beyond your boundaries and doing things if you're feeling uncomfortable about something that's probably a signal you shouldn't be doing it yeah you know that your body's sure. pretty smart yeah you know but well listen that was a fast hour almost um really appreciate the conversation uh how do people so let's wrap this up with talking about how they can reach you personally, like on LinkedIn or Facebook, how do they reach your business and how can people learn more about your art and best yet, how can people buy your art? And I would highly suggest, um, you have small pieces, uh, you have large pieces. Um, mm -hmm. but like I said, as a proud owner of like six different pieces of your artwork, um, I can say that they are very inspiring to me and uh, I'd like to see more houses, uh, your paintings on the walls of many houses throughout the world. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm here on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not on Facebook. I don't know if if I'll ever go on Facebook. I have some. Uh, <laughs> some no, relatives. I think you're smart. <laughs> yeah, it's just too, it's too much technology for me. So LinkedIn, but I am working um with uh, the Real Create Studios and working on a, a web page. So that should mm. be coming up in a week or two. And uh, it's going to be a portfolio only web page where people can go to see my work. But, um, you know, I, I'm on Instagram on Ramona Abstract Art. So basically what I post is I'm trying to keep my message the same across all the platforms that I do use. So what I post on LinkedIn is the same thing that I post on Instagram. So if you're not on Instagram and you're only on LinkedIn, you're not missing anything different. Mm -hmm. I post the same thing on both places. So I, my message is consistent. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a warm and beautiful soul, and it's been an honor to have this conversation with you. Um, Thank you, Jeffrey. It's great to see you. Yeah, you as well. And uh, keep living undeterred, but I know you will. So. I will. Thanks for being Thank on the you. show. I really appreciate it.